Hi, I'm Stuart Bowes. Welcome to the Net Hero Podcast. If you've not listened, where have you been? Come on, get involved. We talk about all things energy, sustainability, and of course, net zero. We're here to talk about business and what it can do to make the planet better. We're here to talk about science. We're here to talk about you. So if you'd like to be involved, then do drop us a line. Listen in, tell your friends, tell your business partners, subscribe. And for all your news around net zero, follow us on futurenetzero.com. Now, on to this week's episode. Hi, I'm Sumer Bose, and this week's episode of the Net Hero podcast, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by someone who's been communicating ideas in that really crucial part of the whole Net Zero conversation. In fact, it's a conversation that's been going on for decades, where science meets politics, where policy and innovation come together? How do we communicate the ideas that scientists are doing and developing to make sure that when policymakers start to look at this, we start to get the right things for society? You've got it right now with AI. You know, just a recent speech by Rishi Sunak, and we've got a conference where Elon Musk will be speaking very soon. You know, these things are all about kind of what we can do and versus what can we control or should we do. Today's uh, guest is the sort of co-president of the Club of Rome, which is an organisation that's looking to try and build this liaison. It's been going for many years, actually. I think it's been going as long as I've been around. So that's a a good vintage, 1968. Uh, Looking at trying to encourage uh, communication between scientists and Policymakers and business people. So, did I say I'm joined by Anders Wichman from the the Club of Rome? Anders, thank you very much for joining us on the Net Hero podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. You have been in business. You've been treading the boards, as I say, between science and policymakers for many years. Before we talk about kind of your background, and I'd like to know more, and definitely for the viewers and listeners, more about the Club of Rome. Why does it matter? that we have this dialogue between scientists and policymakers. Because in many ways, a lot of people say innovation should never have a break on it. It should just, it's what's giving us longevity, agriculture, you know, all the things that we've got, technologies, the, the computers we're talking on now. And some say that that should never really be curtailed by policy. What's your view? My view is the opposite one. Um... Of course, innovation is not um, an easy topic to define because I think most people think it's mostly about uh, technology. And of course, technology is important. Yeah. But uh, innovation uh, covers so many other aspects um, and governance is one of them. The way we organize society is another one. And um, when it comes to technology, of course, there is a lot of technology innovation going on in companies, among entrepreneurs, innovators, where policymaking is not at all involved. Yeah. But there are at the same time a number of social challenges, whether we talk about climate change, ecosystem decline, inequalities, uh, declining trust in society. There are many challenges where we need innovation to address them. And where policymaking has a very important role to stimulate the right kind of innovation, define missions, 
I'm very much influenced by Mariana Mazzucato, who has written several books about this, that um, unless policymakers and governments take an active role, we are not likely to get the kind of solutions that we need uh, with regard to many of those social challenges. We also have a phenomenon called learning curves, which means that normally a new technology, a solution to a problem, is very expensive in the beginning. Of course, yeah. And unless policymakers realize that here is an opportunity and uh, facilitates deployment in the beginning, taking on some of the higher costs, we will not benefit from the learning curves and costs will not come down. Look at solar technology or wind technology. If the German government, and I would say also the, the Chinese government, hadn't started to support development in those areas and paid for the quite high cost in the beginning, we wouldn't be where we are today. So there, I think there is a very close link between policy and innovation. There is a point here, which is they always say, I'm a bit of a, a movie movie kind of nerd. So, you know, the whole Jurassic Park thing, you know, your scientists are too busy working out whether they could, they didn't think whether they should. But often the problem is innovation it's crazy, it's fiery, it's fantastic, it's sexy, it's got all that stuff going on. And then policy just takes ages. It puts a break on things. We've got to look at it, we've got to analyze it, and you suddenly slow things down. Yeah, but you started off by referring to AI. Uh, yeah. There, I think it's, it's interesting to see that some of the most prominent personalities when it comes to AI those are in lead positions, primarily as scientists, they have been begging policymakers to take action for quite some time. Because they realize that unless we put up ethical frameworks for this technology, we may end up where we don't want to be. So I think that there is a need for, for a better dialogue and we need to sensitize policymakers. They need to be trained to understand the role they have to play. And um, in, in the European Union context, I think that there has been a very interesting development following Mariana Mazzucato's initiative some years ago. And they have identified five areas, five social challenges where research money and innovation support has to be focused. One is clean and healthy cities. Yep. Second is climate adaptation. Third is cancer. Fourth is soil, the health of our soils. And the fifth one is freshwater and oceans. And I think all these areas with current business practices, we run the risk of of really aggravating uh, all the problems. So we really need solutions here and we need to stimulate that. And it will not happen by the market itself. The market is good at many things, but it's not good at solving these kind of long-term problems. Yeah, that's probably true. What is the Club of Rome? Can you explain to my viewers and listeners what it is? Uh, I said at the beginning it started, I think, in 68. And I haven't really heard about this until we, we looked into this. But, I mean, what is the idea behind it? How did it form and what does it do today? Well, you could say it's a global think tank. And it, it was um, established in 1968 in the city of Rome. So there is the, the only reason why it's Club of Rome is that that's where they started. It was an uh, Italian uh, businessman, Aurelio Pichet, 
he worked for Fiat at the time, and uh, he was very much concerned about world developments. Uh, and he gathered a, a group of scientists, policymakers, business people, and started to, to discuss long-term issues. And um, I, I think he was a very responsible man. Yeah, ahead of his time, for sure. Yeah, and guided guided by very strong ethics. And in uh, 1970 or 71, they asked MIT to help them with a study about world developments. And that study came in March or April 1972 called Limits to Growth. It became like, a, I don't know, it, it was really a landmark report because it, it looked at production, it looked at pollution, it looked at population, it looked at agriculture, etc., natural resource use, energy, and tried to picture long-term scenarios. And the basic message was business as usual, conventional economic growth would run into problems because of a combination of resource scarcity and pollution. Not tomorrow, not in the next 10 years, but in the next 50 to 100 years. And 52 years have passed now. And 50, exactly. Yeah. So we are, and the problem is that there were other scenarios where policymakers made interventions to protect forests, to protect uh, soils, etc., and, and to make resource use more environmentally benign, to um, do something about rapidly growing populations. At that time, the world population was below 3 billion. Now we are 8 billion. Yeah. So it was, it was really a foresight study. Uh, and some of the other scenarios were positive for mankind, but the business as usual scenario was not positive. And unfortunately, we have more or less followed the business as usual scenario because most policymakers and economists, they didn't like the message <laughs> and they dismissed it. Yep. And the, the leading economists had basically two arguments. They said, either they said, oh, you haven't thought about innovation. We, human beings, we are smart. We will innovate ourselves out to, of any to, Yes, exactly, yeah. There will be new solutions, technical solutions, technical fixes. And the other one was, okay, if we run out of resource, we can just always substitute. And of course, you can substitute plastic for wood, for steel, but you cannot substitute for a stable climate. No. And you cannot substitute for biodiversity and healthy ecosystems that we ultimately depend on. And the problem is that the conventional economic model doesn't really... It, it sort of ignores the natural dimension, although the living systems are are, are the base for it's our life supporting system. And when you talk about and we talk about to, to an economist about it, yeah, he tells you that oh yeah, if there are some negative impacts on the environment or the climate, that's an external effect, externalities. It's what they talk about because it's not within their model, so they don't have a solution for it. Now it just. It just happens that these externalities are the major challenges for us. You look at sustainability, right? And, and it's quite mm -hmm. interesting what you talk about that time, because you know, I was born in 68, right? So, and I look at, you know, the history books and you read the stuff and I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm seeing this in a funny way, but I look at the world pre-war, World War II, and then post-World War II. And after World War II, I think there was a moment of the recognition of kind of, what humanity has done 
negative, obviously, and and some positives. And the the whole thing with the recent Oppenheimer movie has been very interesting about kind of the science of stuff. And then there was a period probably in the 50s to 60s where it was all about recovery, innovation, and science was seen as the golden ticket, you know, sense that science fiction books, the the innovations that started to come, you know, the space race, all of that. But then the planetary side seems to, you know, start to kick in from the kind of the mid-60s and what you're talking about, the early 70s. Yeah, you had uh, Rachel Carson and her book, Silent Spring, etc. That was in the 60s. Correct. What happened, do you think, uh, at that time to trigger this awareness? And then obviously, as you've said, in the 50 years since, we've had a sort of a, a, a low level of, we know this is not good. This is bad shit. We shouldn't be doing this. But hang on, let's go on a holiday and let's go and buy this and let's do that. And we've sort of carried on. Do you think something, was it just seen as kind of, well, it's a bit of a kind of hippie thing and an idea that won't really stretch? Because what you're talking about and what you've said about limits of growth, you know, those lessons 51, 52 years ago, my God, they got it right. <laughs> they got it really right. Yeah, they did. So it was really a wake-up call. And, you know, the book was translated into some 20 languages. It was printed in 10 to 15 million copies. So it was widely read. And I'm old enough to remember the debates. And I think you could say it was something of the birth of the environment movement, or at least it was very it yeah. was a strong component. And now uh, it's taken us a long time to realize the urgency of the problems. Uh, I remember the um, Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro in uh, 1992, I was participating. We got the Climate Convention, the Biodiversity Convention. We got the principles for protection of forests. So, I mean, we have been, we have been at it now for more than 30 years. But still, it's a very, very slow process in terms of progress. And I think maybe the, the, the main challenge or the main problem uh, that we really haven't grappled with is is the, the the gap between the north and the south and that yeah. there are still there are still four billion very poor people in this world yeah who have very little yeah. and whose living standards have to be enhanced but if they would enhance their living standards the way we have developed Ah. and uh, start consume the way we do, the planet would not not cope. And this has been the whole talk in ours at the COP in Glasgow uh, 26, and I know that you've been a politician yourself, uh, and I will get back to the central theme of, of policy, but this has been the real issue of what's probably happened over the last, definitely last five to ten years, but probably longer than that. I look at my own family in India, and the mm. progress that India's made from when I first started to remember going there in the late 70s and early 80s to what it is now. But the consumerism has increased, the same as here, same in Brazil, same in China, same in Russia, same in all developing nations. And the consumerism has come at a very big environmental cost. And then you've had the Western nations say, whoa, 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 you shouldn't do that, you know. And yet things like carbon trading continues and, you know, offsetting continues. We don't seem to be getting this balance right. And for someone who's been in this game for a long time, how do we ever get this balance right? Because you can't stop and you should never stop people in underdeveloped or developing nations getting better lifestyles. No. 
Of course not. But but it seems until we invent better ways of doing it, we're still using the consumption sort of technologies that drove Western expansion a hundred years ago. Yeah, because the rich countries have not paid up. And I think it's really a question of justice and equity. I mean, look look at it. Europe used to colonize large parts of uh, the, the what we call the South. Yeah. And extracted a lot of materials and uh, transferred a lot of wealth from those countries to Europe. Absolutely. That's a legacy that we have to face up to. Secondly, once these countries were decolonized, and after the Second World War, you could say, we established a number of international institutions. We have the World Bank, the National Monetary Fund, we have the World Trade Organization, etc. But all these organizations, the architecture, in my opinion, is very much gaining the rich countries. Yeah. We benefit much more from the rules of those institutions and the way they are managed than low-income countries. Unless we face this and unless we start rethinking how we do things and are ready to redistribute some of the wealth, I don't think this equation is, is possible. And we should, of course, allocate a lot of money to invest in green technology because it's in our own interest. I mean, Africa, with fantastic opportunities for solar energy and to some extent also wind along the coasts. Of course, yeah. We have only only 2% of all the money that has been invested in solar and wind since 2000 has been invested in Africa. It's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. And why? It's not that the technology is not there because the technology is there now. It, it wasn't there 20 years ago, but it is there now because... To borrow money in those countries is very expensive. And even if you have the money, the investment environment is insecure. So you need some kind of investment guarantees. So investments don't happen unless rich countries back them up. And we could do it. But they they would say to you, Anders, that we would like to, but it's just too unstable. And at the end of the day, you said at the beginning, it's all down to economics. People can see an opportunity in Africa or Indonesia or wherever, but then they go, well, yeah, we put, we're building a solar plant, we're going to build all this, but what if the government collapses? What if there's a coup? Our risks yeah. are too high. Yeah. So how do we get around that? Because there is political instability in a lot of these places, which need exactly what you're talking about, which puts investors off. And that's their argument yeah. that would be you know, thrown back saying, well, we'd do it, but look, it's just too unstable. Yeah, but th- that's where investment guarantee is coming. And uh, development agencies like like SIDA in Sweden mm. or the World Bank or the Regional Banks could, of course, do much more to guarantee these kind of investments. <laughs> yeah. And normally, there is not a coup. There is not corruption. Normally, these investments work out pretty well. I mean, there are expe- exceptions, of course, and I, I should, we shouldn't underestimate the risks. But if we all the time look at this as catch-22, yeah. then we won't solve the problems. And I think part of it has to do with investments in the right technology. Part of it has to do with paying for some of the damage that climate change is already causing. And we have been extremely stubborn and, and not really forthcoming. So if I were 
a policymaker in a low-income country, I would be very frustrated. And most of them are, of course. Where do you see net zero at present? It's one of those funny things where I've had a couple of podcasts where I've kind of said to people, is red zero, net zero really a kind of, you know, is it a fad for the Western world? And it makes them feel good and you can, they can do it and go ahead and look at me. We're doing this. We're cutting. We're moving to EVs and we've got solar panels in Holland where that sun doesn't shine. Same as here. You know, we've got Germany with loads of that and they're still burning lignite. Look at that. We've got EV transport in California. And yet we still have enormous oceans of plastic pollution. Mm. We've got loads of smelting going on in places like the Philippines and India and China where, you know, microchips are being recycled allegedly by just being burned or whatever. Mining for cobalt in, in Africa. Do you see that some people have the criticism that basically it's a kind of uh, the greatest form of, of greenwashing for, for the Western countries to say, look, we're trying to repair our damage because we'll do this. But in the end, they're still using resources from the global south to do it. Well, it's it's not it's 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 complex, very complex. And I think if we only focus on climate and uh, greenhouse gas emissions, we won't make it. We have to take a more systemic view. And uh, what's happening to soils, forests, freshwater bodies, oceans is as important. That's why I think the Sustainable Development Goals agenda makes a lot of sense because it deals with all the issues. Yeah. Uh, the problem is that we have very few institutions who are good at looking at it from in a horizontal manner. There's a tendency to, you know, focus on one goal at a time. And that 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 will not be sufficient. You need a more systemic approach. I've been involved in a in an innovation program at the European level called Climate Kick. Kick stands for knowledge and innovation communities. And we have tried to apply a more systemic approach. And we are starting to see the results where we work with agriculture in Ireland. We work with circular economy in Slovenia. Yeah. And we work with hundred more than 100 big cities in Europe trying to help them transform into low carbon environments. But, but you need a systemic approach and you need to back it up with, uh, with fresh money. It's, it's as simple as that. And there is so much wealth in this world. There is. Why don't you tax the rich a bit more? <laughs> I think there's a lot of people who would really agree with you. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's a, it, the whole thing. The whole, the whole situation is absurd. It is. It is. It's very absurd. I don't understand how, how those, I don't understand how those who are, who are incredibly wealthy, how they can be happy with the way the world is run. They sit in their bubbles. <laughs> I mean, taxes is only one, one part of it. The Club of Rome that we referred to, we published a new report about a year ago called Earth for All. It's sort of a follow-up to Limits to Growth. We take stock of where we are, and then we say, okay, given where we are, where should we go? And we have identified five transformative changes for the world to pursue. One is to address poverty very, very aggressively. And here we have to look at trade systems, financial infrastructure in the world, intellectual property rights, and turn them around so that 
they benefit low-income countries. Secondly, we have to have debt relief because many of the low-income countries are heavily indebted. And as long as they are, there's not going to be no. any, any success with poverty eradication. The second transformation is inequalities because we see that the gaps are widening almost everywhere. Oh, yeah. And you don't build trust in society. You don't build trust between individuals and between individuals and, and, and institutions if, if this goes on. So we need to do something about this inequality. Third is strengthen the role of women, empowerment of women, yep. including education of girls, reproductive health, etc., which would also lower birth rates in, in parts of the world where they still are very high. The fourth one is to rethink the way we produce food and move to what we call regenerative agriculture, where all of a sudden agriculture would not be, a, would not be seen as a problem, but really as a benefit. It can be done. And you would, um, you would store a lot of carbon in the process because you build carbon in the soils. And the fifth one is, uh, is the transformation of the energy system. Yeah. And there we have the technologies. So it's just a question of investing not $500 billion or even $1,000 billion, $1 trillion a year in alternatives. We need to invest $3 to $4 billion, trillion. Then we would make. And then as a cross-cutting issue, material consumption. Yes. To consume in, in a more responsible way and to use materials more intelligently because we have more or less linear production flows. You know, we take, we take things, we extract things from uh, materials from, from the earth, we produce stuff, and then we use them for a few months or years, and then we throw them away. There is so much we can do to bring about circular material flows, which would lessen the pressure on the planet. So there are, there are recipes how to go. You've been through this, and I, I've really enjoyed our talk. You've been very inspirational. But do you feel fairly frustrated that you're you're yeah. a young man? Say say yeah, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a young man. Uh, <laughs> Another thirty oh. years from now, are you going to see any difference? So no, I'm 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 quite pessimistic right now. But at the same time, I see all the possibilities and opportunities, and I also hope that uh, some of these new disruptive technologies like AI, if we use them wisely, can help us uh, along the path. But, but it's not going to be easy because we need regulation uh, as well to not develop technology that, that is not benign to humans because that's, that's, that, that's, that's within, within the capacity of the technology. I, I listened to a fascinating talk with a guy called uh, Mu Gadwat a few weeks ago he used to be the chief operating officer at Google, and he said, we have to parent the technology because AI is learning from what we are doing already and from all the data. Yeah, and, and right now, what, what, what the technology is experiencing is a lot of comp competition, winner takes all, a lot of... Not really. There is very little cooperation. So I think we can solve it, but it depends on, on whether we are clever enough to do it.
Thank you. Looking forward to a talk 30 years from now <laughs> and see where we are. <laughs> You've been listening to the Net Hero Podcast with Sumit Bose from Future Net Zero. Visit our platform for all things Net Zero. And if you or your business is doing great things on the path to Net Zero and want to be featured on the podcast, email nethero at futurenetzero.com. Follow us on social media. futurenetzero.com. Better business, better planet.